welcome to today's episode of Beyond the Rock Podcast. I'm your host, Emily Hernandez, and Comedic Relief is provided by my co-host, Jeremy Arnst. If you've not yet done so, please click that subscribe button so you never miss another episode. And if you have time to write us a rating and review on any of the platforms our podcast plays on, we would greatly appreciate it. I wanted to take a quick moment to thank everyone who has been listening and sharing this podcast since we started back in March of 2020. Today, we are celebrating our 20th episode, and we are so grateful for every single guest who has shared their stories, their time, and their energy with us. Thank you all so very much. Today's guest is one of the most famous rock climbers of our time, Hans Florian. Hans is known for repeatedly setting and breaking the speed record on the nose of El Capitan in Yosemite Valley. But setting records are not the only tick marks on Hans's extensive resume. He's always been a competitive and decorated athlete, and his talents range from business consulting to motivational speaking, co-authoring best-selling books, and working with nonprofit organizations like the Access Fund and the American Alpine Club. Hans has a great sense of humor, and he's quite an entertaining storyteller. But I won't waste any more of your time listening to me on the mic, so please enjoy our 20th episode of Beyond the Rock podcast with the one and only Hans Florian. How you doing? I'm doing great, Emily, Jeremy. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, welcome to the cast. It's like Disneyland. You're getting a casting call, huh? Yeah, I mean, and, and speaking of cast, you're you're a little familiar with casts, unfortunately. Oh yeah, that's right. Um, Way to open well, up, right? <laughs> how are how are the legs doing? Fair, actually. Fair. That's good. I broke my ankle two years ago and it still bothers me every day. I guess my challenge is that um, the legs are just good enough that I go out and play hard on them and then I pay for it. And uh, if they would just be totally bad, then I couldn't go out and injure them again. And if they'd be totally good, I wouldn't injure them again. But they go back and forth. For those who may not know what happened to you a couple of years ago, do you mind sharing with our audience what you experienced on one of your favorite places to climb in the world? I have, uh, at, at the time, two years ago, I had climbed the nose of El Cap over 100 times, probably 105 times, and El Cap over 170 times. So uh, I have a bit of experience on it, but I was out for a leisurely 12 or 13 hour ascent of the nose of El Cap out there don't know what that is it's a 32 pitch route and it's 3,000 feet long most parties take three or four days on it but many many people have done it in a single day so we were going to do it in a half day and about halfway up 2300 feet up I was what we call self-belaying because my partner was cleaning the last pitch and I was leading the, ne the next pitch and a nut a chalk a small wedge-shaped piece of metal in the crack pulled out that I placed and I fell about 16 feet, three and a quarter inches and hit a ledge and broke my left fib tib and my right heel because I had too much rope slack out. 
And oh, man. So I actually called 911 and got a hold of the head rangers, and they were like, I think they first kind of thought maybe it was a joke call. It's like, you know, John McEnroe is calling to see if you can play tennis with him. But this is your podcast. People don't know who John McEnroe is. Whatever. Um, and so they may have thought that you were joking because you've never taken a fall on El Cap. Is that correct? Or you've never taken a fall that warranted SAR search and rescue? I've taken many a falls on El Cap. So um, this is just, it's actually the second time I've called them for a rescue. But the other time was a minor sort of shoulder cut and we we walked we rappelled down and walked into the forest and met them so um, it wasn't me that was injured it was my partner at the time got it and and exactly to clarify you have taken many falls being one of the most notable yosemite rock climbers um, of our time so yes thank you for that correction but you decided on this particular time to not self-rescue what made you make that decision? Was it the state that you were in? Would it have just been more efficient for search and rescue to come out? Ah, good question. Um, well, when I looked down at my left leg, I could see the bones went and then turned at an angle. The pain was pretty blinding. I guess, you know, the physicians ask, you know, scale of one to 10, what's the pain? And it was a 10 um, if I tapped or bumped either leg or foot. And so going up was not an option and going down, like my partner lowering me, um, which we actually did. My partner lowered me three pitches, Abraham Shreve. He lowered me three pitches to a ledge where some other climbers kind of helped out. They gave me a down jacket to wear and a sleeping bag so we could wait till search and rescue got there. Could we have lowered all the way to the ground? Probably, but banging around, uh, you know, broken fracture. It wasn't, um, what do they call it? Compound fracture, but bumping it around on the descent, which probably would have taken another four five, six, seven, ten hours, who knows that could have caused internal bleeding or other complications. And yeah, my loved ones would have been mad at me for not accepting a rescue, I think. So how long did you have to wait for the rescue? Uh, five hours and 27 minutes after the phone call, they arrived two guys with a litter angling from ropes that were like 1,470 feet long. Pretty crazy. Wow. That's crazy. It is um, possible by the way, to get rescued by a helicopter, just picked right off the side of the wall. I was only, I was probably... 150 feet higher than Quinn Brett when she got pulled off by the helicopter, but the winds were pretty strong that day. So it was too risky for a helicopter pickoff. Yeah. yeah and, and Quinn Brett is the one who unfortunately got paralyzed uh, from a fall on the boot. Is that? That's correct. Yeah. She fell and hit a ledge um, behind Texas flake. Do you typically place gear on that feature when you're speed climbing or do you run it all out? I always do. You always place a piece. More than one. More than one. Mm. That's such an iconic feature. I mean, I, I can't imagine. Um, I, was, I was watching the video of your 100th ascent. Oh, cool. Yeah, watching you shimmy up to that, you know, top area. Um, obviously, everything is arduous that you do up there, but I can't imagine being up there and then sitting on the top and just 
that view, the, those views. Do you, do you ever get tired of those? I mean, you're in the hundreds, Hans. Um, I don't get tired of it, no. <laughs> um, it's like, you know, to put it in perspective for, again, your listeners, is that the tallest building in the world, uh, the Burj Khalif or the Dubai Tower is 2,550 feet. So El Cap is 500 feet higher than that or about 400 feet higher. But the Burj Khalif is something like 900 feet taller than the second highest building. So all the skyscrapers you see in Singapore and New York and all that, they're like two thirds the height of the Burj Khalif. And they're, you know, almost one half the height of El Cap. I mean, just as far as like other places you can see a, a drop view like that by at least man-made structures, it's impossible. And, you know, you're looking down out over this meadow and these other incredible rock features across the way, like the cathedrals and stuff. So it's, it's pretty amazing. I love watching someone with your experience still light up. As you explained, Hans has got a big old smile on his face, even though he seems a little tired with us today. Um, we oh, not tired we cut him all. off of his dinner. <laughs> so uh, I, um, I pulled insulation out from underneath a crawl space today. So my oh, eyes are watering if it, <laughs> and they're red from that. It's not that I'm tired. It's just. <laughs> That's what I get for assuming. There you go. Full <laughs> yeah, hazmat suit, but I didn't have goggles on. So lots oh, of insulation in the eyes. Yeah. That doesn't sound fun at all. You know, I want to go back, though, to your thing about being bored on the same route. I can think of lots of one and two and three pitch routes that are really good and fun to do, not only in Yosemite, but that I've done in other places. And none of those I've done probably not even like 30 times, let alone 100. The book, you know, your, your podcast people can't see this, but you guys can. I'm holding up on the nose book, which um, I got to read and it's on Audible and iTunes. But um, I don't so much mean to plug is that the book on the nose marks my hundredth ascent. But what's really, I think, incredible to your point about keeping it fresh is that it took 83 different partners to get me it up a, a hundred times. And I think that's something unique about me is that um, as old as I am in climbing, you often had a partner and that was your partner and you climb with that partner, whether you're doing trad or mountaineering or rock climbing or bouldering or ice climbing or whatever, your partner's your partner's because climbing is dangerous. You want to keep the same partner. But the nose is like often the Everest of rock climbing and most people will only do it once and they'll remember it forever. And the looks on their faces that I'm sharing these other 83 people now over a hundred and something people that I've climbed El Cap with, I get to be part of their life forever. And I get to see many of them as their first time on a wall like that. And it's, it's goosebumpy to see people's cool reactions on that stuff. You, you kind of get to relive it again from your first time. I have that experience with the Texas Lady Crushers, the group that I founded a couple of years ago part of what I love is seeing that barrier broken when they look at their objective, which I remember when I used to look at mine and think, how the hell am I going to get up there? I am terrified. They get up there, they come down, they look like a different person. And I think it was, ja was it Jamie, the, um, who? Jamie the, Moy, yeah. 
the two women, uh, one of the two women who joined you on the 100th Ascent, and she said that there was a picture of her, and she just looked and said, like, who's that girl? I've never seen myself smile like that. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, I think it's fun. Like, I've had the opportunity to introduce people to bouldering, which is what I do. But, um, <laughs> you know, they go into the gym, and they see a problem, and they, they don't think they can do it, but they can do it. Um, and then you encourage them to get on the wall and to top it out, and they get really excited that they did it. I can tell you that like, you know, that's kind of the, the grassroots of why people come back again and again to either a climbing gym or the climbing world is that you can go to the gym and lift weights and stuff and do things. But like that bouldering, as much as I poo poo bouldering a little bit, bouldering provides that, that occurrence of, I don't think I can do that. There's a barrier. Oh, wait, I got through it, you know? it's really quick with bouldering. So it, it can refresh people faster than like a, you know, a 30, 40 or 50 foot climb where they get stuck and have to get through it. But um, that is climbing as you hit a barrier and you find out that the strength inside you is stronger than the barrier in front of you. Stolen from Eric Weiermeyer there a little bit. He's the blind climber who's done the seven summits. I love it. And when you took your son up there, was that his idea, your idea uh, jointly? What was his experience like? What was your experience like? Well, this is a, a tough parenting thing, right? You, sure. you want your kids to love the activity you do, um, whether it's tennis, golf, or climbing or whatever. And, you know, subtle parents know that if you push too hard for them to do the activity you're doing, they, they'll, they'll, rejected or whatever um and so i was i tried to be soft and you know i'd say hey if you guys ever want to climb a cap I, i'm your guy you know and my daughter actually went up with me before my son um but we turned around about uh, four or five pitches up and she's still wanting to go back and do it she's two years older than pierce mariana is her name so to that question, his idea, I think it was his idea. He knew that like there was more than an offer on the plate. There was a, he would please his papa to no end if um, he went for it. So Aww. yeah. And it was just kind of serendipity that executive director Phil Powers said, Hey, you know, what about our sons going up? Or I, I forget which one of us kind of actually threw it out there on the table it was kind of simultaneous maybe, but like, my eyes just rose like, wow, Phil Powers and I both have kids within one year of each other. Let's do it. So it's fun. That's amazing. And another amazing story where I found a really big emotional connection was when you spent time in the columns with Peter Hoffmeister. Am I saying that right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, whoever filmed the video. When you uh, spent time in the... It was a super awesome video. Um <laughs> Max Buscini, yes. plug up for him. Yeah. Who was that again? Max Buscini. Max Buscini. You share your experience and then you think, oh man, Hans broke his legs and this competition is off and then Peter gets into his bike accident. So was the connection during that time something that you didn't expect when you first agreed to this uh, competition per se? Yeah. Um, I mean, Jamie Moyer, my co-author kind of quote, set the thing up or <laughs> yeah, she introduced did. us. And so I knew that there was, you know, foul play going on, so to speak, that, the, you know, what's what she got me into now. 
because she knew that I'm kind of game for any competition. And um, I do you kinda, mind, I'm sorry, do you mind explaining? I, I'm so rude. I, I didn't really explain to our audience what I'm speaking of. Do you mind giving a quick rundown? Yeah, actually, I come back to the columns. Emily mentioned the columns and like that could be a lot of different places. Uh, Washington column uh, could be the columns that everyone climbs at Devil's Tower in Wyoming. Um, column climbing there. There's probably some others, but I would probably say the least known columns would be the one we climb, which is in Eugene, Oregon, <laughs> kind of right in the city. Uh, there's these beautiful... I call them like, you know, lava flute shoots that go up and there's arets and then there's corners and then there's arets and then there's corners and then there's arets and there's corners. Some of them have cracks in the face. Some of them have cracks back in the corner. And it is a cool little crag in downtown Eugene, which I had never been to. And it's about 60 feet high. And one of the locals got the idea of like, I'm going to do a, a nose mileage day on our local crag. And he did. And he, after a while, got his time down to like, I think three and a half hours, which is like, oh, that's pretty fast for climbing the nose, right? But um, yeah, Jamie, our co-author says, well, if you think that's fast, you should invite Hans to your local crag and see how he does. So that's kind of was the beginning of this whole thing. And um, once I got to know Peter on the phone, I started talking smack and I saw that he could take it. And um, we started like puffing our chests up at each other on the phone. And <laughs> then, uh, yeah, then... Uh, I think only like a couple weeks later, I broke my legs. And I think Peter waited a couple days to call me or I called him and he said, I guess the, the comp's off. And I'm like, no, it's not. It's just postponed. <laughs> True Han style. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And then he got into his bicycle accident and um, Peter suffered a traumatic brain injury and had to do some serious neurological and physical rehab and still has some effects from that accident. So I actually got emotional toward the end of that video um, because I've suffered a broken back, shattered ankle concussion. Mm -hmm. And I remember what it felt like to have everything in that moment just seem like it was taken away from you. And um, so did you get a little emotional as your stories aligned at the end of that? Or do you think it was more for? Oh, for sure. And um gosh, you're getting all serious. And I had this good comedy thing, Jeremy, to add is that like, <laughs> so I'm going to add it before we go back to serious is like, you know, his brain injury didn't fix the problem that he thought he could beat Hans Florine. So <laughs> he's still messed up. <laughs> so you talk to somebody like me, I'll just swatch it down to reality. So no. <laughs> um, you know, I had tearful moments going up and like, you know, meeting Peter and his wife and and like this, he's got this local community that they came out to watch us climb. And I was just like, holy moly, like, you know, just kind of hanging my head and raising my shoulders and like, whoa, I, you know, this is amazing that, you know, this crowd's coming out to cheer us on and stuff. Um, it was so sweet. Um, my fiance, Lisbeth, came up with me and we, we got stayed at his uh, sister's home by this lake. And like, we kind of like we're family within 24 hours. So it was, it was pretty neat. Um, yeah. 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 That's super. I mean, it, it was super cool. Sorry to burst your comedic uh, punchline. I know that you do like to include that in your, in your life. Oh, we fit it in there. It's fine. <laughs> but yeah, I definitely recommend uh, everyone to check out that video. Super unique super well shot. We'll go ahead and include the link in the show notes. Cool.
So Hans, how did you get into speed climbing? Great question. I came from an athletic background to climbing as opposed to, it's not that these are your only avenues to climbing. Well, first we need to note that there were no climbing gyms when I started climbing. For the first basically five years I climbed, there were no climbing gyms on the planet. Um, so I went outdoor climbing to experience the first time and the second time and the hundredth time for those first five years. But something came along called climbing competitions in the 80s. And I went to the Phoenix bouldering competition, which wasn't a speed climbing, although, you know, you do have to do a lot of boulder problems in a given set amount of time. But I, I was nowhere near a winner in that. But the first like national or regional events I went to, I didn't do so well in difficulty. Well, I guess, I don't know, I did okay. I didn't take place last, but they said, okay, there's a speed event, go up this route and um, we'll de declare a winner. And the one I most vividly remember was one of the Jeff Lowe national comps up in Seattle. I don't know, the route probably was like five, nine plus, but I remember many of the top, climbers in difficulty kind of poo-pooing it and saying this is a sellout we're making a circus of climbing and i think i i found out like they're going to give you a rope for winning and i'm like well that's all i needed to hear you know that's like 160 bucks back then like why would i don't care if it's a sellout i'm winning a rope damn it <laughs> and uh, i just went as fast as i could and i think i think back then you were required to do all the events, speed climbing and difficulty, they didn't have bouldering back then. And so I, I think I recall some of the better difficulty climbers would go up the route and maybe even goof around and fall off and whatnot. And I'm just going, well, that's one less person I have to beat, so that's fine. And um, there was a handful of us that took it as fun. I wouldn't say we took it seriously. We just took it as, ha ha ha, let's run up this route as fast as we could. And I remember walking away with the rope and I, I Actually, the Petzl PMI rep was there for the Western Arena, and they said, you want to be sponsored? And I'm like, uh, sure. So I not only got a rope, but I got a, a harness out of the deal. And like kind of my most memorable like milestones in competitive climbing, I guess, was from speed climbing. So Jeremy, to answer your question, I got good at it because I was just willing, I guess, to do what competition directors told me to do go fast. Okay. I'll go fast. And then at one point, at what point did that translate into let's go fast up El Cap. You know, rock outside. El, El Cap. Well, um, I don't want to give away too much from my book, uh, but I, this, this idea of like, if you want to be a climber, you need to do this that the other you need to go do a mountaineering peak you need to go do a trad route you need to do a sport route bouldering to be a well-rounded climber maybe well in california like well you need to go to yosemite you know the mecca whatever you need to go there and climb so you can say you climbed on yosemite granite but further like you need to go up one of the big walls either half dome or el cap and so i kind of begrudgingly went up el cap and suffered a lot and second time i failed to get up it on the nose i failed to get up the first try on that and came back the next year and did it in almost three days and i was just 
exhausted for days. Um, you top out and you have all this gear to hike off with and repel. And I just thought of it, okay, I'm done with this. It's vertical camping and it's a lot of work and uh, I'm good. <laughs> I was at the time much more into like, hey, let's go do a, you know, a single pitch trad route or single pitch sport climbing route because competitions were just growing and things like that. But I ran into Steve Schneider who had just soloed the nose by himself in a single day. And I'm like, wow, that guy did it by himself in one third the time it took me and my competent partner. That's crazy. Um, and so I saw him at, at that speed event that I just mentioned and said, hey, Steve, would you climb El Cap with me sometimes so we could do it quickly and maybe get the record? And he said, who the hell are you, Hans? <laughs> I didn't know who I was. And um, I think he funny in his funny way said, well, I'll do it with you. Cause I don't want you to get the record with someone else. And I'm like record. I, I'm just, I, I'm nobody, you know, but lo and behold, our first time roping up together, we went and climbed the nose and got the record at the time. It was nine hours or something. We did it in eight hours, a little over eight hours. And to me, Steve Schneider was kind of the John McEnroe of climbing. He was the most famous American big wall, free climber, whatever um, at the time. And so I was nobody and I, wow, this kind of was amazing to me. So when someone beat a record, um, I went back and broke it the next year. And then when someone broke it again, I went back and broke it again because it opened so many doors for me. Well, talk to us about how it opened so many doors for you. Are you talking about in your climbing life? Are you talking about in business and networking, all the above? Mm, both, but by, you know, 90% I'm talking about climbing community. I would be in Europe um, doing the World Cup comps, and typically they'd have one every two weeks in 1991, 1990, 92, whatever, 93. Um, and you would compete against people on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then you'd see them in Bukes or Verdun or wherever the comp was, maybe in the Frankenjur in Germany or Italy you'd see them on Tuesday or Wednesday at the crag and just everybody's buds and numerous times. Um, but vividly, I remember somebody coming up to me at the crag and saying, Hey, congratulations on that speed record. And I had, you know, three days ago, I had met this person at the comp and I had beaten somebody. Usually typically it was an Eastern block person. I beat by like a half a second on the speed route. And I go, and I'd say in a rare moment of Hans humbleness, I'd say, well, you know, I, I only beat him by a half second, you know. And in this particular case, there was a guy who said, no, no, I'm not talking about last weekend. I'm talking about your record on the nose. And I was like, wow, I did that, you know, four years ago. And this was now like, you know, mid, late 80s or 90s. And, I, and I'd be like, wow, here I am across the planet being congratulated for something I did in Yosemite, you know, three, four years ago. And I literally had people like go, Hey, if you need a place to stay, you want to come over for dinner that people didn't know me, you know, and for French people, that's really unusual. There's a little poke at the French, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, I got to go stay at Wolfgang Gulick's home. Um, my first trip over because I was friends with Steve Schneider because I had the record on the nose, you know, of course, Wolfgang didn't let me stay there because I did something amazing. I was just friends with Steve Schneider, but, I got to uh, speak and chat with kind of the famous climbers of the day in the late 80s and all through the 90s because I 
I had the record on the nose, which is to them like the Everest of big wall trad climbing, right? So. And I mean, this was before social media. That was this. What what year did you uh, have the record first? 1990 and 91 and 92. And then that lasted for 10 years? Nine and a half years. <laughs> Not, sorry. Yeah. I know how Dean precise you are with numbers. Dean O'Neill and Dean Potter. Yeah, so almost 10 years we held it. Um, yeah. You know, so, oh, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say, while we're on the topic of the, the nose speed record, I have a question for you since you've held it a few times, one or two. Um, <laughs> Do you think there's anything left there or have Tommy and Alex taken it to the very limit? You really want to go down that question? I'm like, I thought oh you, man, you, I know where this is going. insult me was to say like, uh, do you still have the record, Hans? And the answer is no, I don't. Um, so Tommy Caldwell and and Alex, I forget his last name. Um, it, he was on that movie. Grammy. something. Anyway, Oscar guy. Um, <laughs> They broke the record, then they broke it again, their own record, then they broke it again. They dropped it under two hours, which is pretty neat. Um, just as a reference, the next fastest time it was Brad Gobright and Jimmy. Jimmy, what's your last name? Or James. They had it at 2.19, so they did it 20 minutes faster than them. And my record was... 223 so they did 24 fast minutes faster than me and alex um will it go faster yes um i look at it like this is that right now you're rewarded in climbing for you know there's lots of different areas of climbing but you're rewarded for climbing about 30 to 90 or maybe even 100 and 200 seconds of effort like on a hard boulder problem just like two or three minutes or on a really hard sport climb which might be three to seven minutes and if you talk to eric horst who is the international expert about training and climbing you train specifically for those things no sprinter 100 meter sprinter is going to also be able to do a marathon and no mile runner is ever going to be able to win the 100 meter sprint so when you have the world over rewarding, and I say rewarding people based on, you know, just pats on the back as well as sponsorship for red pointing hard routes and doing hard boulder problems. That's where people are going to train for. Now, yeah, there's rare exceptions like 24, 514 pitches stacked on top of each other, like Tommy Caldwell did on El Cap. It's amazing, right? But that was, again, that was a 14 day effort, not a two hour effort. The two-hour effort has never been rewarded in climbing, with the, the only exception being the race up the nose. I mean, people, don't, uh, people don't care about that record back in the 80s or the 90s so much. Um, and, yeah, I mean, Tommy and, Tommy and Alex trained off and on. Uh, they think they did it 12 times together over the period of two months and they made a record of it. Imagine if the marathon's a great comparison because it went from 230 to 220 to 210 and it only recently in the last year was gone sub two hours. But that's an event that people have trained for for over a century, right? And known it to have acceptance among the community. And no marathon runner is gonna get the world record by training two months to do it, right? 
but Tommy and Alex trained two months and they did it. Now, granted, they didn't start at zero, but got really technical there. I was like, yeah, so the long oh, answer yeah, that, that is, awesome. Jeremy, yes, yes, the time can be beat and it will be beat. And, and I just wanted to get out there. It's Jim Reynolds and Brad, Brad Goldberg. Ah, sorry, Jimmy. Yeah, rest in peace, Brad, rest in peace. Um, you know, another notable time that you had yet again uh, was with Mr. Eric, and I am going to butcher his name. It was in 1996, and it was one of your most memorable experiences on the nose. Can you tell our audience about your time with Eric and why that was so special? Eric W. <laughs> Eric Dub. <laughs> why and Mayor. Um, why and Mayor. Okay. Hold on here. Um, I should have turned my phone off. So Eric approached me, Steve Schneider introduced us in 1996 at the Phoenix bouldering competition. And I saw that he was cheating, um, which is an interesting word choice. Saw, um, I didn't know he was blind. And at the Phoenix bouldering contest, you're not allowed to give people beta when they're on the route and everyone shout left hand up to the pocket, right hand over to the thing. Watch out. I'm just like, you guys, you're cheating, you know? And then I almost, yelled at the person but luckily somebody caught me and grabbed my shoulder and explained to me that eric was blind so i didn't make a total fool of myself um because i'm a stickler for rules anyway eric kind of casually said hey so do you think a blind person could climb el cap and that was way back in the 90s when i was young and ignorant and i'm like sure blind person could climb el cap and he goes well how about we give it a go and i'm like oh shoot I, what have i gotten myself into um, but he was down. The guy went and lived in Yosemite for over a month, trained, and he did like leaning tower with his buddies and um, cr crazy. I, I, um, I threw him at things that I, I, he just kept accepting, like, here, try leading this on top rope, fake lead. And he'd do it, and I'd go, well, I guess lead that without the top rope. And then he'd do it, and you're just, your eyes are just, going you know and your jaws dropping go wow he, he's just doing everything we tell him to that's totally amazing like and i've tried a couple times to close my eyes and feel how to put pro in and feel the way of crack and i'm just beyond terrified right um I'll, i'm gonna pause for emphasis is that eric is the most amazing human i know or ever met yeah so we he convinced me that we should climb El Cap with his two friends, um, Sam Bridgem and Eric. Oh gosh, not Eric. Um, John, Jeff Evans, Jeff Evans. Okay, got him. Um, and uh, we did it in classic style. We sieged it. We went up a few pitches, fixed ropes. Then we returned and went on and slept on the route two nights um so a total of like a four and a half day ascent and typically when i tell people in an audience that eric climbed el cap with me they say well i know you know if they if it's a climbers announce they know that somebody leads and somebody follows so what's the big deal you just put your rope clamps on your petzl ascenders or sorry i didn't mean to plug so much but ascenders jumars whatever and you just follow the rope it doesn't matter if you can see or not and it's actually better if you can't see right because you're not scared being up there exposed thousands of feet and then i explained to people well you know eric actually led some of the pitches thousands of feet up 
And they're like, what? Hans, you're an idiot. You followed a blind guy up El Cap? And I'm like, uh, yeah, I mean, we tugged on the rope to make sure he did the knots right up there and it seemed to hold. So um, I will say that was the most terrifying thing is seeing Eric up, you know, 50 feet above me. And like, I gave him three number two Camelots and the crack is two inches wide for 120 feet. And I'm like sitting there going, I'm an idiot. Like he's going to need to leave pro behind and then he'll be run out of pro and like, he's going to be stuck. And he just, oh my gosh, I was so terrified so many times when he would have to go down back clean, pull a cam out. And then he was only on one cam. And I was just like, what have I done? I can't. And you know, there's cameraman up there filming this. I'm just like, oh, I'm going to kill Eric. And this, the, just the exhaustion from being concerned about him to hauling loads to, you know, making sure everyone's safe. And I topped out the, the route and Steve Schneider had come around to the top with the camera people to shoot us topping out. And we let Eric lead the last pitch and he, he, he did it into the cameras. And then I came up jugging the line and Steve saw me and yeah, he, he kind of has knows me better than anybody at that time. And he goes, wow, Hans, that, you look like you're totally worked. And I, I literally just broke down and cried because I was so physically tired and so, I don't know, relieved that we didn't die, I guess. It was amazing. Um, in my book, I, I, you can't put emotion in text that you're reading, but like every time I go to like a, a book reading with Jamie, my co-author, she wanted me to read that part and I would tear up every time because I just I vividly remember how exhausted I was and how like Eric was up there talking to his wife and the camera people and Steve stayed down here with me he's like like holding my shoulder and I was just bent over like on all fours kind of crying because I, I was just tired and I was just so relieved that we were at the top. Yeah, I can, I can imagine that type of stress and I can only imagine. I'm not going to say I know how you feel because I absolutely do not. And that was, you know, what, 25-ish, wait, am I doing math right? Yeah, about 25-ish years ago. So do you think that if he would have approached you at, at, let's say, five years ago, that you would have maybe changed some of your tactics or altered plans a little bit to ensure more safety? I, I guess the better question is, do you feel like you were more uh, ego driven as a younger climber, um, whereas at your age right now, you pay more attention to the emotional detail? I think Emily just called you old. I'm just saying. That's awesome. In relation uh, to the age of the world, gentlemen, we are all supremely young. So to you know, back defend then myself. Young, but now that you're old, Hans, like would you do it again? I'm older. I'm 33. I go to bed early. I'm an old lady. <laughs> I'm just messing with you. So, go ahead. Um, you used large concepts like the word ego, only a three-letter word, and it's it is a large concept. And humility is often used with that as a antonym or whatever. But I, I didn't climb El Cap with Eric so much because of puff my chest up ego in the 90s. It was more ignorance. I didn't know how crazy a thing that was to do back then. Um, yeah, there's that you're in your 
Let's see, what was I? I was in my early 30s. Yeah, early 30s or late 20s. Um, early 30s. And I still had that young man, immortal thing going, but I, I also was just ignorant. I didn't know how much work it takes to do that. Um, I didn't know how much work it would take for him or me or the other two, Sam and Jeff. I mean, like all of us, like it was a crazy amount of work. Um, it was just amazing that all of us held together. You also need to remember like incredible Jeff Evans and Sam Bridgem had never been up a, a big wall route before they arrived in Yosemite. And yeah, totally nuts. And, and the book, sorry to uh, interrupt, but the book that Hans has been referring to, which he authored, is On the Nose. So we will definitely include some links where you can go ahead and buy that, everyone. I am yet to read it because I am very behind on many books that I need to read, but it is on my list. I'm not trying to spoil everything from it, but it seems like almost every question we've asked you've gone into in your book. I'm so sorry. Well, and if you don't have time to read it, you can listen to it on iTunes, Audible, or from my website. Yes. Yeah. Eric, yeah. I mean, I could talk, we could talk the rest of the podcast just about Eric, because after that, like topping out, like one would think I'd never go on an adventure with him again. But years later, he invited me to go do Aconcagua, which is the highest peak in South America. And the reason I accepted was because I don't know nothing about mountaineering. So I wasn't going to be the leader of the team. I was just the <laughs> other innocent person going along, you know, or whatever. Uh, although he's not innocent at all. Um, <laughs> and he's not for lack of experience. He'd already done Denali and many other peaks. So um, I was a newbie on the team and he just invited me along kind of, I don't know, maybe as a gift because I went up the nose with him. Yeah. Maybe, you know, you mentioned that you've had 83 different partners on the nose and what have some of the reactions been when you invite them? Like the first conversation, uh, are a lot of them super excited? Are they surprised? Are they hesitant? <laughs> What's a typical response? So, or do they geek out like me and go, Hans? <laughs> there's got to be the, uh, the explanation that like the first 15 times I did it. I wasn't famous Hans Florine, right? So that reaction from people is different than after I had the record and all that stuff decades true. later, right? Very so true. The early reaction was, uh, let me see if I have off work. I'll go with you. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have enough you know, money to pay for gas to get there? Yeah, you know, that sort of thing. So I, I often use this um, comparison is that if Warren Buffett, and for your listeners that don't know who he is, he's the number one investor in the world, that's the most successful investor in the world. Um, I don't believe he's the richest man in the world, but he's probably one of the top 10. If he told you like, oh, let me just show you a couple of investments, start with $1,000 and I'll make you a millionaire within a month, you'd be like, no effing way, right? It's just completely out of your perspective. I have taken a high school teacher with basically zero climbing experience up El Cap. The style they did it in, yes, they jugged the whole thing, but, and they cried on the first pitch and the second pitch and the 10th pitch and at the top. Um, but we got them up it in two days. 
Um, this was in the 90s when I was kind of ignorant and somebody asked me if we'd take them up LCAP. I'm like, oh, okay. And there was a little miscommunication about their skill level or their experience, but uh, we were there and like we were game. So me and Schneider took this person up LCAP. And so that reaction is like that person didn't know what they were in for until they got there and like they're crying. Other reactions are the same as if Warren Buffett said you can make be a millionaire in a month, you'd be like, no effing way. I've, I know people have the ability to go and climb El Cap with me. Jeremy, <laughs> even a bolder <laughs> Jeremy, you could go climb El Cap probably in a day with me tomorrow. It would be really hard. And style-wise, you might be following every pitch, but I bet we I would definitely do. cry, Hans. I would do a lot of crying. <laughs> I'd let you boulder the roof pitch since you're a boulder um, yeah, on top rope, on top rope, of course. 100% um, on top rope. So I, I have to try to find what, the, to get to your question about what, what people's reaction is. It's like, I love climbing with different people. I, I, I love climbing with five, seven climbers, five, six climbers, whatever, five, 12 climbers, I 14, yeah, or 13, whatever. Um, I myself am not one of those, but um it's not their ability level. It's that they want to have fun. And um, sometimes when I say you can climb El Cap, it's like Warren Buffett saying, I can make you a millionaire investor, you know, your net worth a million within a month. You can't believe it because it's so out of your realm of uh, experience. So I was going to say, I don't want to claim that I have as much experience climbing El Cap as Warren Buffett has investing but I have put in my 10,000 hours. So I, I know a thing or two. Yeah. So you kind of touched on it and maybe you're joking like being the famous Hans, but is it, do you get noticed a lot and can you just roll into the Valley without it being like, just, I'm just going to roll in the Valley and climb without having to talk to you know a hundred people before you get to the wall. I uh, have found that I am in the perfect um, zone for fame in that, um, I don't know, Brad Pitt or Angelie Jolie, they can't go through an airport or a public place without being recognized. I can go through an airport or public space and never be recognized as anybody. They might mistake me for Tom Petty, but not, they're not going to recognize me. But if I go into an REI or a climbing shop or a climbing gym, there's like a 98% chance someone is going to recognize me. And so if I need my little... Well, we'll go back to that ego, my ego, you know, padded or my little self-confidence padded. I can go to a climbing gym or an outdoor retailer shop that's, you know, maybe not a ski shop, but, you know, an outdoor type shop that sells backpacking and climbing guidebooks. Someone would know who I am, probably. And it's a neat feeling. I mean, my, my kids always roll their eyes like oh god papa's got recognized again here it goes you know somebody's starting in asking all the questions and wants an autograph and they my kids just have had it up to here with that so um <laughs> i'm i'm hiding under my hand because i was that woman at the red rock rendezvous the last one they had in 2018 in las vegas yay thank you but my son wasn't there to be embarrassed so i very true. But, you know, I, one of the things I wanted to ask you already answered about being recognized and it, and it does feel good. And, and I must say you are so approachable when I realized you were you, the only thing I could say was Hans. And you just said, Hey, as if 
we hadn't seen each other in forever and I uh, had aggravated my back injury. So I was actually kind of sad that I couldn't climb. And you were kind enough to accept my protein bars after I shared the story about oh Chelsea God. Rude joining <laughs> you at age 10. Um, right. Do you remember? Of course, listen to me. Do you remember that? Of course. <laughs> so thank you for being so kind. You even emailed me afterwards thanking me for the bars, which I think was kind and classy. And um, it still lifts you up is what you're saying. Yeah. Sure. It it doesn't get old. Is there anybody that is like totally obnoxious or the is there a type of person who recognizes you that you're just like, okay, I'm gonna check out of this real quick? Um there certainly could be, you know, people like that, but like we we, I'm gonna say we are fortunate that the climbing community is pretty good group of folks. And yeah, we're just lucky. Like there's a lot of really cool people in the outdoor and climbing community. And they, for one, you can't go and golf with Tiger Woods. All right. You just can't, you're not going to go to the golf course and happen to run into him and share a hole with him. You can show up at Craig and like you're standing next to Lynn Hill. I've done it when she was the height of her fame in Europe, you know? Uh, and I was nobody. And here's Lynn Hill, like talking with me, you know, mixing French and English and whatnot, uh, but whatever. Um, the same token, you could go climb Crimson Chrysalis in Red Rocks and lo and behold, Alex Holm comes up to Solo and asks if he can pass you by. I'm like, you just were climbing the same rocks as Alex Honnold, who is, you know, arguably the most well-known name in climbing right now. So on the one hand, it's cool to be recognized as a celebrity, but on the other hand, our sport is pretty neat that I think that famous climbers need to be approachable because they're going to get approached, <laughs> right? You don't have a private golf course that you can go to to hide from all those lowly, bumbly five, seven climbers or people who blah, 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 boulder, whatever. <laughs> Unacceptable. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> We so so before this, I was listening to the normal cast that you did, where you said that bouldering is what you do to get ready for climbing, and I almost lost it because we constantly have sport climbers on this, and never any boulders. Hey, we had Sierra Blair uh, Blair Coyle with That's us. True. We, I got one. I got one. Does Sierra call herself out as a boulder or a sport climber or what? She claims herself as a boulderer and or more so than anything. She's new to deep water soloing. I'm not sure that she's that new to deep water soloing. I think she's been doing it for a little while, but. I think, or maybe it was the boat. She yeah, had the, a boat that yeah, she purchased she, a few years ago and she and just, just recently used it last out. year. Yeah. So name like Sierra though. She should be a big wall climber, Sierra mountaineer or something, I think. If you're listening, Sierra, I could hook you up with so that your name kind of matches up. We'll go trad climbing in Yosemite. We'll go up El Cap. I'll let you boulder a couple of the pitches. So um, what's the biggest thing that you've noticed that's changed since you started climbing? I think the, the biggest change is that people with money are climbing. That was always uh, the joke I had with my friends. I was asking my friends, you know, so you have you know, you have glamping and you have camping and you have 
dirt bags and climbing. And then what do you call climbers who, you know, can afford to buy all the fun toys and all that stuff. And then my friend just said, just normal climbers, They're just normal climbers and everybody else is a dirt bag, I guess. I don't know. So, um, I'm going to start off by saying I, I, I'm white and I am privileged and I, I may some, I, I'll probably won't say exactly correct things, but I, I've been following a lot and trying to be really educated about um, Black Lives Matter and a, a lot of different things in that category of diversity and acceptance. And someone, um, one of the many people speaking out and educated about it was talking about how the hippies and the early dirtbags in the 70s would go to Camp 4 and they were opting out of society while BIPOC people, Black, black people were trying to opt into society. So not only is it sort of like, you know, sure, you're a white person and you can opt out of society and go live with torn blue jeans and go camp four and climb, but you can, as a white person, you can go back to work after taking six months off or a year off or 10 years off. That's not so easy for BIPOC um, folks. And when I said one of the biggest changes is that people with money have climbed. Um, I want, I want to say that I'm sensitive to um, Black Lives Matter movement. Like in one way, I'm not saying it's good or bad. I just said that's one of the larger changes is that I'll go to Red River Gorge and like there's these families here at this decorated crag, I call it, where they have all shiny brand new gear and they've put money into it and they're wearing the most expensive clothes for climbing from Osportiva to Prana to whatever. And they've rented a house and they are there for three days and they're driving up in a Tesla. And um, it's like, I'm staggered. I mean, we, that, that, I think they're ahead of us there in the Midwest, head of California. And that like they've dressed these crags with the names of the roots at the base the grade, um, fixed draws on many things, um, free stick clips at, at the trailhead to take. And it's just staggering that the, how accepted climbing is from, I'll call it the mainstream of the Midwest and the Northeast, I think more so than California, certainly sport climbing. Yeah, it's just, that's the largest change. Um, that I see. I guess the, the image I always have when people mention that there's a lot more money in climbing now is just the line of like sprinter vans in, you know, in your, on the side of the road in Yosemite or something like that. True. Um, I, I can remember a line of old Chevy vans <laughs> and VW vans uh, in the early nineties. Um, I, and I guess sprinter vans relatively do cost more per household income now than those vans we used back then. So it's an indication, but still vans. I can't afford one. So <laughs> vans, man, they just bleed money. It's not just that initial purchase. I mean, that's like just the beginning. You got to just... buy it and then you got to put like 50 grand of, you know, <laughs> kitchen and bathroom and batteries and solar and everything in there it's like buying a second house yeah so hans i'm gonna shift gears a little bit because i can you went to school for business am i right 
Yes. All right. So how has that paralleled rock climbing? Did you get work in the corporate world and then decide to go as a full-time professional climber? Or did you begin your life as an entrepreneur after the corporate world and then they kind of ran parallel together? I know that you manage Diablo Rock Gym, you're a business consultant, you do public speaking, or at least pre-COVID, you're an author, father, all the above. <laughs> Talk to me about the role that business plays in your life. So we're giving away, I think, one of the the biggest moments in my life that's briefly mentioned in the book, On the Nose. And I should point out, On the Nose book is not a biography. It's just a, stories of those hundred descents but, and ideas around them. So um, I went to high school in a upper white class neighborhood, and I went to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo Polytechnic, which is one of the state colleges here in California. And I went because I was wanted by the track coach. So uh, just a little play on words there. I didn't go there for business, but I went there because that's what you do when you're one of four kids and everybody else went to college. So you go to college. And um, I liked it a lot, I guess. So I went for six years instead of just four and I got a double degree in economics. Um, and so I was just kind of like, I think most late teenagers, 18, 19 year olds and early twenties, it's crazy to ask those age people what they're going to do with their life. So I just did kind of what everyone else was doing in my community, which was go to high school, go to college, get a job with a collared shirt and dress slacks and sit in a cubby hole somewhere and whatever. Um, so that's what I did. Um, I, interviewed a month before I graduated. I got two offers. I went to the one in LA to a manufacturing facility and I was a production operations manager. I actually cut my hair really short for the first couple months of the job and then I grew it out and then I cut it short again just to see what I could get away with, I guess. So uh, your question is um, about like, how did that all come about is that I learned climbing my last couple of years of college and then I climbed every freaking weekend and every day after work I could when I was working 50 hours a week as a yuppie, young urban professional for those people. Um, and um, the national st tour started in climbing and I knew there was no money in it, but I'm like, I don't owe any money right now. I don't have kids. I don't owe a mortgage or I don't owe a car loan. And, I think I'm just going to go off and climb. And I, I, this was like this, you see these whys in the road in your life. I was asked in by my boss to come in and he was going to give me a raise. And I was struggling for weeks to try to figure out a way to tell him that I'm going to quit. And here he is offering me this big raise with responsibilities. And all that. I'm like, I got to tell you, you know, in front of his boss, a woman, um, she she's just like what you're gonna quit we just offered you a raise and i'm like uh i know but i just feel i i gotta do this if i do this ever in my life i gotta do it now i didn't really have a plan other than to just go off on the road and go climbing full time 
I did not have a plan to be a professional climber. And I still, to this day, correct people like, you know, professional climber, professional anything really needs to earn their living. I, I had some savings and I could swing a hammer. So, I mean, I didn't earn even a thousand dollars a year. My first couple of years of full-time climbing, not professional climbing, full-time climbing, right? I was eating top ramen with Bobby Bensman in, in Tucson, Arizona and having bean burritos with Bobby Bensman and the like. And uh, yeah, we were on a budget. I remember doing rice and vegetables and we were paying like a dollar 42 each for our meals um, in when we were living in Europe and finding free places to camp and stuff and things like that. So yeah. Um, I don't know if I answered your question. I was just telling a timeline and babbling. Oh, it was a jumbled question anyways, and pretty much everything that you're sharing with us is very enjoyable. So I do appreciate it. And it kind of rolls into a little bit more of a hippy dippy woo wooey question. And it almost seems like maybe at that moment you found your purpose in life or, was there a moment later down the road where you were able to either just kind of sit with yourself and your thoughts and realize that you were fulfilling the purpose that you have here on earth? Or is that, did you ever get that deep or not? Is that too woo woo -y? Purpose is an interesting, you know, again, that's a big concept, but like, I, I felt that, um, I'll say this. I, I feel that I was really very, very appreciative of, what I was getting to do. I mean, I'd be sitting there in my 76 GMC van in American Fork, Utah, and a couple other friends around and like, we were queens and kings. We owned that campsite area, the eight or dozen of us that were around. Like, nobody was our boss. We didn't have to work. We went and we climbed all day and we had a beer and ate food at night. And like, I just, I realized like we were in this crazy circle of amazingness and I would go and then I'd be at Mount Lemon a couple months later and I might run into one or other two people that were climbing also. And like that I had seen somewhere else. And then we'd be at rifle and then we'd be in Yosemite and then Tuolumne and then different places. And we were just like kings and queens. There was nobody told us what to do. It was, I really appreciated it. And as far as like purpose, I, I don't know. I just appreciated that we could do this. And, you know, sure, a couple of years in, I found I was very gifted at climbing El Cap quickly. And that brought me some interesting abilities to fund my climbing because of, you know, sponsorships, I didn't have to pay for my gear and things like that. And like, heck, I got invited to the most famous competition in the world, which at the time was what the rock masters, the Arco rock masters in Italy, because I won the international speed climbing championships, the first ever one. And was it purpose, but it, it was acceptance. That's what it was. I, I appreciated that I was accepted by the community that I was in and I found a place to be. Um, and I loved the people. And I think, you know, whether I, they loved me, they, they, they acted as if they did. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I hung out with people. It was, it was wonderful. It was purposeful, perhaps, 
I, I, I talk about this because I do do motivational speaking is that like, I don't go to Ethiopia and put shoes on kids feet, but other people tell me, Hey, I heard you speak about what you did three years ago and I quit my job and I went to China and I started this business and did it. I'm like, wow, I did. I motivated you to do that. And I distinctly remember someone else say, I quit my whatever job at the, what some, some, and I went to, be with doctors without borders for the last two years. And I'm like, wow, you know, it, it could be completely diverse. And then somebody else just like, I quit my job and I went on a climbing sabbatical for seven months, which may not seem purposeful or meaningful, but like, I, you may not even think it, think it was good of me to influence them that way. But I'm just sharing the story that me, I felt great that they put a smile on their face and they made a life change direction because of me. And um, they are saying it was positive. You know, their parents might not think so, but. <laughs> you know, and you do make a very good point. The climbing community is very accepting. And a lot of humans, including myself at some points, have really struggled with where where am I accepted? Yeah, I'm bicultural. I'm Jewish. I uh I'm a loud voice, uh, but also a sensitive soul. And it's like, where, where, where do I fit in? What am I? Um, but in the climbing community, as Selena Pang, our most recent guest shared, when you get around that campfire after a day of climbing, who you are back at home and, you know, how much money you make, whatever you do for a living, it washes away. We're, we're equals in that camp around that campfire. And like you said, I could be climbing right next to, um, and I would, Peter Croft. I mean, he could be around the same crag and you can't do that. I can't play basketball next to LeBron James on like a random court. And anyways, I don't know where I'm going with that. I just think acceptance in the climbing community is paramount and um, I'm very grateful for it as well. And I'd say that it's, it's pretty, someone would have to be pretty fresh in the climbing world to be a braggart. or conceited, um, you learn really quickly that you cannot judge somebody's climbing ability by looking at them. Um, and this is maybe a slight deviation from what you're saying, but like there's, you better be humble in the climbing world because um, I mean, I distinctly remember when I started climbing heavy set people out climbing me and I was just like, what? and I've always been thin and fit looking. But um, I distinctly remember being out climbed by quote unquote heavy set people. I'm like, oh my gosh, I, I suck or I don't know. Like there's a lot of skill in climbing as well as, you know, fitness and lots of hours you have to put in to learn the skill. So I really, I really like that, that you can't, that it's, it's not a good idea to be a braggart in climbing. And I bet there's a lot of listeners out there that have known me for decades go like, Hunt, you're probably the king of bragging. <laughs> but it's, well, I, I think, know. you know, Hans, I think you're just real with what you have done. And you are your, we're both our own worst critics and um, one of the loudest voices to be, you know, preaching our accomplishments. Uh, you worked hard for them and you're confident with what you did and or what you have done, excuse me. So yeah. I could. I can see. I was gonna say it's not really bragging if you're you can back it up, right? So what is it if you can back it up? It's just 
Hans, I think it's just a strength in your personality. I think it's confidence. And I see a lot of personality traits uh, that I have in you and vice versa. I don't know how, what way that street would have gone, but um, I'm not, I tell people I'm not for everybody. I'm not everybody's cup of tea and hmm. you find out who's going to listen and who will accept you and you roll with it. <laughs> I mean, like I go, hey, Emily, uh, what's the hardest thing you've red pointed? That I've red pointed on trad or sport? Or no, wait, I guess if it's a true red point trad, um, like maybe a five, six in Boulder Canyon. Cool. See, I mean, <laughs> like I'd ask that of people and, you know, they would him and haw and all this stuff back and forth and maybe even call me like you ask, you care about just the numbers. And I'm like, no, I'm just, I just curious to know. Like I'm a track and field athlete and I'll go to him and go, what's your 400 time? You know, like, I'm just curious. I want to know about them, you know? And yeah, it's just a number, but like, it is just a number. I just, you know, um, it doesn't make them a better or worse person because their 400 meter time is, you know, slower than 70 seconds or whatever. Yeah. I find that that's one of the weird things about climbing is the only, I don't want to say the only, the only defined way that you can ask somebody what their climbing level is that is to ask them their grade when the reality, like what their climbing level is, is, is what they're getting out of it. Right. Like to me, like your enjoyment level of climbing is really what's more important to me than what grade you're climbing. But I don't have a level to be like, man, how much do you enjoy climbing? Can you give me a, on a scale of one to 10? How high is your stoke? That's right. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. Alex Lowe said the best climber is the one having the most fun. Yep. I love that quote. I love it. And you know, as an athlete myself, I understand being curious, just like, what was your time or what's your best send? It's not to be like, oh, well, mine is this. It's legitimately a conversation starter, but I can understand how that could come off to some people, especially from someone super experienced or very decorated being, uh, you know, a little jarring. Uh, what I have noticed, and I don't know if you have as a, as a, a leader in the community, Hans, but when someone shares a moment, sometimes they'll follow it up by diminishing the importance or diminishing what they did. Like, oh, well, I only, yeah, I did a five, seven, but I mean, I did it on top rope or are you, are you familiar with people doing that? I hear the classic is like, we'll be in a conversation and we go, well, I'm not really a climber like you. And I'm like, okay, well now we got to get into like, well, what makes a climber, you know, going to the gym more than twice a week. I don't know, you know, oh, if you go to the gym and you're not really a climber, I, I love the gym. <laughs> I love climbing in the gym. Does that make me not a climber because I climb indoors? I don't know. Well, I guess I'm not a climber then because I love climbing in gyms, but so yeah, um, I do get, I do get people in my presence saying, well, you know, I'll say, oh, so how long have you been climbing? They're like, well, I'm not really a climber and I'm like, I, I, you don't have to like be labeled a climber. I, I personally am an adventure seeker, you know, so I, I dabble with mountain biking, stand up paddle boarding, hiking, climbing, whatever, you know, kayaking. I think it may kind of be the imposter syndrome. Like who am I to call myself a climber or who am I to say, you know, I'm an adventurer. I think, I don't know, maybe it's just the human form. Yeah. I definitely struggle with that. Yeah. There is truth to like climber, climber for life, climbers, you know, I, by the way, I, I would have been fine, not fine, but not surprised if after 
climbing for four, five, six years after I quit that yuppie job that I went back to work and decided to take up triathlons and never climbed again. It wouldn't have surprised me a bit. I, I like sinking myself into things. In fact, I did a couple of triathlons, but, um, or get into, I don't know, kite surfing or windsurfing or something. It wouldn't have surprised me if I switched sports. Um, therefore, I wouldn't have been a quote climber, right? What would I be? An outdoor athlete? Perhaps, but like, why do you, you don't really have to name it, I guess. As it turns out, I am a lifer climber, climber for life. Um, so, and we are so glad that you are. So, go ahead, Jeremy. I was gonna say, you didn't ask me, but my answer to that question is, what's a red point? <laughs> I only kind of know there's red points and there's pink points, and I'm like, I don't know, that's sport climber stuff. Uh, so, we talked a lot about your past, but can you tell us what you're working on now? Working on, um, or specifically do hard things, the do hard things challenge. Yeah. Do hard things. When I, I managed the Diablo rock gym, which is one of the touchstone climbing gyms, the last nine and a half years. And we started this thing in 2011, 2010, 11 called, um, DRG challenge, Diablo rock gym challenge. And, um, basically I, I asked people, Hey, what, what's some cool challenges we could do? And let's make a list of a hundred and see if we can do them in a year. You know, this is not a new idea, a tick list, right. Of things to do, but we did simple things like do five pushups from your knees. Presumably everyone can do that, you know, unless you're quadriplegic or whatever. We didn't so much think, but at first it was physical challenges, but then we did, you know, we'd say, Hey, you know, do burn 200 calories on the elliptical trainer. Um, and then we'd say, well, write three handwritten notes. There's something kind of interesting. Nobody writes handwritten notes anymore. Um, and then there was like, take a yoga class, take a CrossFit class, take, you know, and again, it was fitness things, but we started thinking, well, let's do interesting things like, you know, tell your partner lover that you love them 17 times in a day or something. Um, memorize 50 words of, Shakespeare or some other notable classic literature and recite it to somebody. And we did that for the nine years I was there and it was a huge success. And we gave people t-shirts for accomplishing a certain goal level and um, it was good recognition. But I think one of the things that struck me most was uh, a woman came up to me and said, I'm so thankful you made this challenge list. Uh, I'm so psyched. I got on that elliptical yesterday and I did a hundred calories on it. And I'm like, Oh, cool. And I'm kind of like rolling my eyes. Like, well, where's this punchline going? And she goes, I've been a member here four years and I've never been on the elliptical. And I love that machine. And I'm just like, Oh, cool. I'm so glad. We introduced it. And she goes, the only reason I did it was because it was on the challenge list. <laughs> and I was like, wow, all we did was suggest to somebody to do something, you know, and sure we thought like, Climbers had never taken a yoga class, so we might get them to take a yoga class. Or there are people at our gym that only come for yoga, and we might have gotten them to weight lift or try a boulder problem. So it was about getting people to try new things, not so much go run a marathon, right, or climb a 515. There's a challenge. Um, but it was to get people to try new things. And um, here I was thinking I'm going to get somebody to, like, do a yoga class and then or be a vegetarian for a week if they're a carnivore. 
And here's this sweet woman just like, oh, I tried the elliptical machine and I love it, you know? And so now we've learned, like, I just, every year I'd ask everyone else to tell me challenges. So it's not coming from me, just like what they think is interesting. Someone say, oh, you should try to use chopsticks for a week. Oh, wow. That is kind of a cool idea. You should try to use your left hand on your phone or your non-dominant hand on your phone for a week. That's it. It's amazing the things you learn. And so when I moved on from managing that, I started DHT, which is do hard things challenge, um, at symbol DHT challenge. Um, and we have a list that we made and I got a lot of input from a lot of friends and, you know, we're doing interesting things. I'll tell you my favorite one right now is ask 20 people what you can do to make their life wonderful. It, and I've done that. And like these people have come to me was like, some of them said, you just did by asking me. And others are like, could you go climbing with me next weekend? I'm like, sure. That'd make your life more wonderful. I'll do that, you know, whatever. Um, but it's, you know, people, just simple stuff like that. Uh, is cool. And sure, we have all the other things like climb 2,000 feet outdoors in a week or um, bike 200 miles in a month or those sort of things. Yeah, that's really cool. I so, love challenges. Yeah. So you have this kind of, there's a time frame and you know you're just going to do it and you're going to try new things. And if, if it doesn't work out, it's just going to be over on this date and I don't have to, it doesn't have to be eternal, right? No, no. I, I'm a really big fan of making challenges small enough that you have celebrations along the way, right? Like, gosh, if you're going to climb El Cap, let's celebrate getting to the top of the first pitch and then the top of the second pitch. And it's 32 pitches long, you know? High five a little bit at a time. Or the, the march of a thousand steps starts with the first one or 10,000 steps, whatever. Yeah. Gotta have little, little challenges to celebrate here and there. Yeah, definitely. I've never run a, I've never done a triathlon, but I ran a half marathon and, you know, you just get a little, you know, I got through, you get through one week and you get through one month of training and then you get through a couple months of training and then you get to the race and you, you either make it or you don't. I happen to have made it. And so that was awesome. And you get to celebrate all those little things like your first 10 mile run. And you're like, yes, sick. I made it 10 miles. Half marathons only three more miles, three and a half more miles or whatever it is. So 3.1 more miles. Yeah. Celebrating those victories is pertinent uh, to, to, yeah, your success along the way with your, um, your goals. And you also talk a lot about, um, or excuse me, talk a lot about, you also speak of celebrating milestones and how important those are as well. Mm. So on that note, as we are wrapping things up, tonight. Thank you so much for being so patient with all these questions. You've been such the trooper, man. I, I can't even tell yeah. you. I'm, my cheeks hurt from smiling so much because you crack me up and then you're also my one of my idols as well. I know we've gone so. way long and I feel like we could go for like three more three more hours and Emily and I wouldn't run out of questions. So I appreciate talking. Totally. Um, let's, um, let's try to think of a uh, a subject we could talk on next time and keep it in the within the whatever time frame because you guys are fun to talk to and get stuff out of me <laughs> is it time for plugs um it could be but i mean i i definitely wouldn't mind i'm for those who don't know which you wouldn't because we don't share videos i'm actually in my closet right now because <laughs> i've been there <laughs> because you know you just do it for the cast man and um 
and you are actually our 20th podcast episode. So speaking of celebrating small victories, hooray. the year and I'm the 20th. Wow, Love there you go. I know for sure. So yeah, as we wrap up, let's go ahead and hear some of those plugs. Uh, any, any causes that you're supporting or wanting to share, we are going to include all of it in the show notes for our audience. Awesome. Um, well, at symbol DHT dog haunts the challenge DHT challenge. That's go just go there on social media. And that is me offering up ideas or suggestions to you to like challenge yourself. And we talked about that a little bit already. Um, doing hard things. Uh, what else? I have an audio book out about my speed climbing stuff techniques that I just finished this year. Um, you know, hansflorine.com kind of will take you to anything if you forget. And maybe my name might be tough to spell, but they'll probably have it here on the podcast. I, I don't know what else to plug. I mean, my life's really rich. I don't mean to plug, but I'd say that the number one thing that I've, if you want to call it giving back to, is the access fund. Um, I've been doing stuff for them since. Uh, I think within a year of when they first started out of a garage in California, Armando Menical, and I think it was 1991 or two. So they're going to have their 30 year anniversary pretty soon. The access fund. Um, and I, I, I have tons of fun memories with them. So uh, yeah, I know this is just a plug. I could keep talking. I'm just <laughs> a plug. So yeah. Um, if you're in Red River Gorge or Yosemite and you want to stay in a house, hauntspacecamp.com. You can stay at my house. Not for free, but, you know. <laughs> Say you heard about it on the podcast and I'll donate some money to the Access Fund for you or a charity that you like that I approve of. Cool. Right on. That's it for me. Thank you guys so much for having me. I, I'll come on again and we'll we'll talk about new stuff maybe. That'd be awesome. I would definitely, yeah, I would definitely like that. I, I was very excited. I'm always excited to share who our guests are, but you really made a great impact on me at the Red Rock Rendezvous. I was out there by myself. I was sad and didn't know anybody. And I think you really started that. You helped me start that night off in a lot better state than I showed up to base camp in. So I think that's where the Yay. deep connection with me comes from. Cool. So thank good to know. Well, thank you. Thank you everyone so much for listening to our episode and we will have every single link that you need to check out all the plugs that Hans shared with us today. Thank you so much again, Hans, and we will see y'all on the next episode. Bye. Bye.